Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> As we've seen new strains emerge, and particularly this Delta variant, which is way more contagious than, than any of the previous strains, um, that, that number is a moving target. And that's a hard thing for the American mm. public to kind of get their arms around because they were like, wait, you told us 60% and we were good. And now there's this Delta variant that is two to four times as contagious and uh, really impacting uh, the unvaccinated in a, in a very different way. We're now seeing the highest rates of pediatric hospitalization we've seen. We're seeing uh, very high rates of people under 50 getting hospitalized. So it's a different animal that we're dealing with. And that that's part of the reason the goalposts are moving. And frankly, they're moving in a, in a way that may not actually be attainable. Welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners. I am your political host, Will Wright. And Josh is off um, once again. He's off trying to be John Malkovich, but hopefully he'll be back next week. Um, but thankfully, we have instead uh, someone who is not John Malkovich. It is Dr. Danny Avula. I should have clarified that. Is it a, a, Avula? Avula is right. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> and, uh, and he's Virginia State Vaccination Coordinator. And, and as the uh, Richmond Times um, said in one of their articles that he's the Dr. Fauci of Virginia, although I would say maybe Dr. Fauci is the NIH of Danny Avula. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so so, so um, welcome. Welcome, Dr. Avula. Thanks. Great to be here. I actually got the chance to be on a, uh, a webinar with Dr. Fauci recently, and I shared this story because I had uh, you know, been spending a lot of time over the last year and a half uh, in the media, on TV, on radio, and I was at the library a few weeks ago and uh, ran in, I, I was in my car backing out. A woman started waving me down. Uh, she runs towards the car, and I'd left my coffee mug on top of the car. And as she hands me my coffee mug, she says, you look really familiar. Are you Dr. Fauci? <laughs> It was, it was hilarious. And so I got to tell Dr. Fauci that story, which was one of the highlights of, of my COVID experience. That's hilarious. You should have said yes. <laughs> and then when she sees him on TV, be like, that's an imposter. I met Dr. Fauci. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, so, so what, what do you, um, um, what do you do, I guess, like for, for Virginia and kind of the whole, the whole COVID um, response and everything? Sure. So, you know, prior to January of 2021, uh, I was serving in my role as the local public health director for the city of Richmond and the county of Henrico. Uh, and what the local public health department does, I mean, kind of outside of COVID, we have all kinds of things we're engaged with, uh, looking at the way that different uh communities, how, how are they healthy or, or how do we help them be healthier? Uh, there's a lot of educational efforts, uh, but then communicable disease is a huge part of what we do as well. And so when there are localized outbreaks, like a norovirus outbreak from a, from a restaurant or a flu outbreak in a nursing home, it's our team, our epidemiologists and our, our contact tracers that go in there and try to contain that disease. So that has been uh, completely ramped up on steroids in the midst of COVID. Uh, we added about 150 new staff uh, during during the uh, during 2020 to really uh, build the contact tracing and case investigation teams to really get after every case, every new positive, and to, to really do a full case investigation and contact tracing on those. So, uh, you know, 
our, our role as a local health department through most of 2020 was trying to help people make sense of what's going on with COVID, trying to help them understand what is this virus? How is it transmitted? What do we do to prevent it? And what kinds of changes do we need to wait to, to make? Uh, wearing masks, social distancing, should we shut down the workplace, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that was a bulk of our work in 2020. I mean, we really shifted to almost 100% COVID focus. Um, in January of 21, the governor reached out and asked me to come and join the state effort and to really help uh, coordinate the vaccine rollout at the state level. So since January, uh, I played a very different role with a, a statewide lens, actually uh, helping execute the operations of the vaccine rollout. And so that was, that's been just an incredible endeavor uh, over the last seven months or so. And now I'm starting to, to uh, kind of float back into my local public health role, but I've got a foot in both worlds. So a, a pretty comprehensive perspective, at least on COVID in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. And, and Virginia was one of the first um, states to actually roll out um, an emergency temporary standard for COVID, which um, I thought was pretty phenomenal. And I, you know, I, I'd love to kind of get your take on like, how, how did, like, if you were part of that, and, and how much of, a, of an effect do you think it actually had on, on like businesses in Virginia? So I was not a part of the creation of that. That happened in July of 2020 and really in the in the midst of uh, COVID unfolding and after kind of the second wave of disease last summer, uh, I certainly was a part of enforcing that and, and helping translate it for a lot of our partners. So uh, I think to your question about what difference that it make, maybe first I would say that this, uh, this emergency standard really... Uh, kind of hones in on one of the core hot button issues in public health, which is uh, what do we encourage and what do we legislate? What do we mandate? Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of philosophical approaches to that question. And, uh, and it also gets to some of our core beliefs about uh, individual rights versus protecting the, the, the public good or protecting the community at large. And, and so all of these things like throughout COVID have just come into, uh, you you know, have, have butted heads. And, and so I think the emergency standard, particularly where we were last year, uh, watching places like New York and Chicago, where their healthcare systems were just completely overwhelmed, uh, that was, uh, you know, that was something we had to pay attention to. And so I really uh, tip my hat to the governor and the team at the state who said, you know what, we really have to get more serious about uh, figuring out how to use every tool we can to prevent the spread of this disease. It was very difficult to actually enforce a lot of that. And some of that fell to our folks at the local level. You know, I can't tell you how many calls we were getting from uh, a, a store owner or a, a restaurant or a patron who said, hey, this restaurant isn't complying by the emergency standards. Uh, and then our, our health department teams in many cases had to go out and to try to document evidence or to try to talk to the, the store manager about how to how to enforce these. And it just, uh, they were very difficult times. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I think it made a difference, but it, but it wasn't without its challenge. Yeah, what's been one of one of the uh, biggest hurdles you think you've had to overcome um, with with the uh, pandemic? Well, you know, I would look really to the last 
seven, eight months of the vaccine rollout. And, you know, early on, the biggest hurdle was that uh, we did not have a lot of the tools we needed to effectively uh, get vaccine to eight and a half million people. And and when I say tools, I'm talking about things like uh, a, a registration system that works and is easily accessible for everybody, uh, a centralized call center that could handle the kind of volume that this was going to generate. I mean, uh, you know, the reality is that we've just never faced any threat that has impacted Virginia or the country or the world on this scale, and nobody was prepared for that. And so mm-hmm. that was that was one of the early challenges is figuring out how do you build up that infrastructure, the communications infrastructure, the support, uh, the way to help people know if they're eligible to get vaccinated, and if so, how do they get access to it? So that was an extraordinary challenge. Um, I think the other, probably the most acute part of that was uh, January, February, and a little bit of March, where our vaccine supply was nowhere near enough to meet the demand. And so really having to figure out how do you um, parse out a very scarce resource and justify it with, a, you know, a risk categorization and then, you know, deal with just the, the angst and the frenzy that, that people would go through as they contemplated their own, uh, you know, risk level and their fear about this, this impending virus. And so that, those were really difficult months because part of my role as the state vaccination coordinator uh, was to update, you know, lots of different constituents and try to help them understand where we were at, what we were doing to try to help increase access to vaccine and why some people really should wait until the most uh, vulnerable among us could get access to it first. Wow. Now, now there's, there's, um, there's three uh, vaccines that are available, right? So there's Pfizer, Moderna, and um, Johnson and Johnson. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm team Pfizer. Here's the back of my card. I'm not showing you guys the front, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, can you, can you explain like what the differences are be- between the three? Yeah. So the first two, the Pfizer and Moderna are very similar vaccines and they were built on a platform called the mRNA messenger RNA platform. And it's a platform that uh, we have been evolving. We, the, public health and healthcare institution at large um, since really the late 1990s. And so they've, they've tried a lot of different uh, vaccine attempts on this mRNA platform. Most recently, there were, there were some efforts around the Ebola virus and, and a couple of others in recent years. But this is the first time that it really took, that we, they were able to um, load up this COVID virus onto the mRNA platform and create a vehicle to to get just the spike protein, the genetic material that codes for uh, the spike. So everybody's seen the coronavirus uh, particle, Mm -hmm. which is that ball with all the spikes on it. Um, So what, what the mRNA platform does is it delivers a little bit of genetic code. Your cells read it. They make this spike protein, and then your immune system responds to that spike protein by developing antibodies. Um, and and really, it's remarkable how effective that mRNA platform has been for this particular virus. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is built on a slightly different platform. It's called an adenovirus vector. Adenovirus is one of the very commonly occurring cold viruses that we see every year. So what they did is they took 
the empty shell called the capsid of a of an adenovirus, put some of that genetic material from the COVID virus into it, insert that into the body, and then your immune system similarly sees that genetic material and develops a, an immune response against it. So same concept, you're, you're triggering your immune system to recognize this invader, rev up its defenses, and be able to recognize it if it were to show up again. Got it. So, so when you, when you say, so the Johnson and Johnson, you said that like they take like, like not, not the coat, not COVID itself, they, but they do, it's something inside the shell you're, you're, you're talking about. So they took some of the, the genetic material of COVID and they put it in the shell of another killed virus. So adenovirus, uh, the reason it's called the adenovirus vector is because they use the outer shell of an adenovirus just to get it into the body. But it's the COVID spike protein that it codes for. So again, similar concept. It's using genetic material from the COVID virus. But in in any of those cases, nobody is injecting the COVID virus into your body. Got it. Now, now, what about um, what about microchips? Are they injecting microchips in us? <laughs> I know the I know the answer to that. No, I'm just curious. <laughs> no, the, obviously that question has come up a lot, and I really don't know the origins of that. Um, but I, I I do think it aligns with this overarching sense that there's something, uh, some kind of foul play with COVID from the beginning. Like, what is this virus? Where did it come from? Why are we all getting it? Is it real? And then that ju- that thread just continued through vaccination. And so all of these things like, is there a microchip or does it cause you to be magnetic? I mean, so many different things circulating on social media. But absolutely, there's no way that the microchips could be small enough to even fit in that vaccine. Uh, and it, I mean, I think it, it is one of the more... Um, out, outlandish myths, but but there's been a lot, uh, a lot of different things that people have brought up to try to dissuade people from getting this vaccine and even believing that this virus is a real thing. Yeah, yeah, that that is really crazy. Now, now, if with the prevalence of vaccine hesitancy in this country, um, I mean, is is there a is there another option to get us out of the pandemic, or is vaccines really like really it? Yeah, I think both on the domestic and global scale, vaccines are absolutely going to be needed to get us out of this pandemic. Now, you know, if we let the va- the the virus take its course, it, it's possible that we get to some degree of herd immunity or whatever that means. It's the the meaning of that has evolved as as this pandemic has evolved, but um, it's possible that you know the virus and its and its present and future variants get through enough of the population that it kind of peters out over time, but it's not going to do it without great cost, great cost to life, uh, great cost to the healthcare system in terms of hospitalizations. Um, and so the, the clearly the best way, the preferred way, the safest way for us to get out of this pandemic is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Mm, got it. Do, do you find vaccine hesitancy to be limited to a particular age group, particular, you know, ethnic group, um, like, like what are, what are you seeing, you know, as like the biggest, um, you know, um, areas demographic of people that are being hesitant to take the vaccine? Yeah, they're really different camps. Well, there are a lot of different people who for their own reasons, uh, don't trust this vaccine. So, uh, let's take, uh, 
white evangelicals as one category. You know, over time, they have been probably the largest group that ha- that has had the lowest rates of vaccination. Um, and a lot of that hesitancy, and I've spent a lot of time doing focus groups with pastors around the state, uh, I talking to folks in my own church, in my own community. Uh, and, and, you know, that people really do have this sense that COVID is not real, that it was manufactured by the government, that it is a hoax, that uh, the vaccine is really sort of embedded so much in big pharma that, uh, you know, hearing the government get in bed with big pharma, you know, they're, they're trying to make me do something that I, that I, I don't want to do. And I don't want to let these companies get rich off of me. Um, so I think the core of that is really this distrust of government and a resistance to government telling you what you should do. So there's that camp. Uh, I think in the African-American community, so I live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. I have a Black daughter. She's adopted. um, And we're still very, she's very much plugged into the African-American community. Um, And and a lot of our work in public health has been working with the African-American community around other, you know, previous vaccine hesitancy to to the flu flu vaccine, as an example. Um, And that is rooted in kind of a different uh, set of, of skepticism. You know, this country has not been kind to Black people historically, and particularly institutional governmental public health, right? There are so many examples of uh, forced sterilization, of surgical experimentation, of, you know, the Tuskegee experiment is probably the best known, but, you know, it's one of, of many, many, many efforts to devalue the humanity of Black people. And so that has resulted in a pretty understandable and justified uh, skepticism about what the mm-hmm. government's trying to tell you what to do, especially when it relates to health. Um, so that that is rampant in the Black community, and I would say more strongly in the young Black community than the older Black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But And then the third camp, I think, is just young people writ large. Like, young people uh, feel like, hey, you know, COVID isn't really causing severe disease. I don't want to put that into my body. I don't know enough about it. Um, but if I got COVID anyway, it's not that big a deal because, you know, young people aren't really getting severe disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one other interesting thing that, that has come up in survey data is that when young people are asked, like, who do you look to for information? Where do you go for <laughs> credible sources around COVID? The number one answer is themselves, right? They don't trust necessarily <laughs> a doctor or somebody else. And, um, so like the, the sources of information just are, are really challenging to infiltrate. Um, but I want to I come back to that uh, differentiation I mentioned between the elderly in the Black community and the younger folks in the Black community, um, early on in this pandemic, and really even now that we're seeing this, this next surge with Delta, this, that, this virus has created massive disparities in health outcomes related to COVID. And so early on, we just saw uh, really disproportionate rates of hospitalization and death happening in the Black community and the Latino community. And I just know, like talking to my, my own neighbors and my own friends, that that COVID, like the impact of COVID was way more proximate for my Black neighbors and friends. Like they had people Mm. in their families or their church congregations um, or that were just very close to them that were either hospitalized or had died. And so the way that uh, that the black community responded to COVID was is it just felt very different than mm. uh, than folks in other communities and and that proximity I think led to a a really high uptake in the elderly black community because they just seen the impact of it firsthand. 
Wow, that's that. so. So with the, with the vaccines, um, and especially in Virginia. So you and I both live in Virginia. Uh, Virginia just got a huge influx of Afghanistan refugees. Um, um, how, how does how does that work with like the supply chain? Like, the, does the does the federal government have like their own stash, or does does Virginia, you know, give them the vaccines? Or I, I'm I'm just curious. This isn't really necessarily a question from from a yeah, from a listener. Yeah. This is just something I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those things are true. I mean, the way that this whole rollout has been working is that the federal government uh, has contracts with manufacturers. They then do the uh, doling out of vaccine. And so each state uh, gets a certain amount that they can order down a week. And this was only relevant up till about end of April, early May, because at that point, the demand started to drop off and the production really, really caught up. So really, at this point, we could order down as, as much as we needed. Um, mm. And the state health department would then order that down and we would distribute or have uh, we would approve providers. So pharmacies, doctors, offices, health departments, hospitals who wanted to, to get direct shipments of that vaccine. So all of that, all that ordering was happening through the state, uh, pulling down vaccine from the federal level. The federal government also has you know, a supply of vaccine that it would ship directly to pharmacies or to federal outposts. So like military bases, the VA hospital, Department of Defense employees, um, and they were doing a lot of that vaccination directly. So as it relates to the 24,000 or so uh, Afghanistan, Afghani refugees who have been coming into Virginia, um, it's a joint effort. And, and the, our, the local health departments uh, who are actually you know, part of the state uh, infrastructure are up, they're doing screening, they're doing testing, they're doing vaccination. Um, and then, and, and so it's, it's a bit of a combo effort between the, the states and the feds. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Got it. Now, now I want to circle back to what you were saying about, you know, kind of the church and the vaccine hesitancy. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what, um, what, what faith you are. Um, feel free to let me know if you, if you feel so inclined, but I'm curious, like, what would you say to somebody in a church or your church? If they say, you know, I, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Um, my God will protect me or, or what, what have you, like, what, what would you say to that person? Yeah. Um, so I, I certainly consider myself a Christian. I've uh, been a part of a Protestant church for uh, most of my adult life and um, worship here at a Presbyterian church in Richmond. Um, and this has come up a lot, certainly with individuals in our community, but also with, with patients. I still do a little bit of clinical work, and I remember very vividly a few months ago uh, talking to the parent. I'm a pediatrician, so I was talking to the parent of, of one of my patients, and, uh, and she said, you know, I, I don't want to get vaccinated. God will protect me. Um, and that has been a, a very consistent theme through faith communities, is the sense mm-hmm. that 
this threat is something uh, that's not bigger than God, right? God, God can absolutely vanquish this threat. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, my, my answer generally is that I absolutely believe that God is bigger than this threat. I also believe that God uses tools uh, like science to help us. And, and, you know, you point to medicines and you point to sort of, sort of the entire industry of healthcare and, uh, and then even things like seatbelts. Right. I mean, there are just very practical things that medicine and industry have evolved that mm-hmm. uh, that we trust are part of God's plan to keep us safe or to keep or to help us prosper. And and uh, and for some reason, this particular you know, virus and the vaccination effort behind it has just been such a flashpoint in faith communities that that uh, people sort of hold on to this almost fundamentalism in a, in a different way than we've seen with a lot of other health issues. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It's almost like, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't envy the role that you're in only because as a Christian and as a person that, you know, you know, is in charge of the vaccination effort in Virginia, you know, like I, I could only imagine people considering you to just be like this instrument of the devil you know, or something <laughs> in, in the sense of you're trying to push these vaccines into my vein, you know? Uh, and I don't know if you get any of that. And I really hope you don't, but, um, but, but, you know, as, as a person that, that pushes for vaccines, I mean, I would think that uh, a Christian or a believer would say, look, like I'm a believer. I think you should get the vaccine. Um, so what does, how does that fit into, you know, your particular context of why God's telling you not to get the vaccine? Cause I'm imagining Christians and all different and other kinds of faiths like played a role in the development of the vaccine, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think fundamentally God uses science, right? God created us as beings who uh, have, have brains that are thinking of and doing this amazing research. And so, mm-hmm. I think it, the, the question for me has been, why has that been uncoupled from, uh, you know, from the hand of God? Like, why is all of a sudden science, advancement, medicine, treatment, like how how has that been put in this category of not of God? Uh, and, you know, again, the, the, the larger context around this virus and just where this country is right now, uh, I think all of that has played into that a fair amount. And, and to your earlier question, like I have gotten a lot of that. I, um, I'm i not on social media very much, but my daughter is and my wife is. And so every once in a while, they'll be like, did you see this one? <laughs> uh, and, oh and, you know, I think there, there's been some pretty hard stuff. And and I've, I've also gotten letters sent to my office and certainly my staff have as well. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's been a very emotional uh just the 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 last year and a half has, has like struck a lot of emotional chords for our population uh and so people often fill my inbox and my mailbox with with the way that they're feeling about that wow. now are, are these like handwritten letters or are these not, uh yes. like typed <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> I've, gotten, I've gotten both handwritten hate mail and hate mail 
Oh my gosh. I can't even remember the last time I I wrote an actual, like, <laughs> I mean, really that, that's a level care. of dedication. It's like, you, you really got to care if you got to find a pen and a piece of paper and a stamp, you know, like there's just all these different components, you know, all of which time, by the time you're all done with it, you could have gotten your vaccination, you know, <laughs> but, um, but, but I want to switch to, to, to kids. Cause I, I do have two young ones, um, five, and seven um and they're currently not eligible to get the vac- vaccine um although they just started school they're like in their second week of school now and i i had a lot of uh, concern about sending them back i mean like my 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 day job i work in the safety field so like i get paid to be paranoid and i was really really just naturally paranoid for them to go back i'm like i don't know if the teachers are vaccinated i don't know like what they're you know they don't report like the vaccination rates like at least the county populates all the positives every single day which is great because i i check it every day and i'm counting i'm like okay they had 17 at school district wide you know my school's not in there <laughs> but but you know how when when can we expect there to be a, a vaccine for, you know, kids under, well, I think, was it 12 now or something? Yeah. Uh, so right now we have an approved vaccine for kids 12 and over. Uh, they have had ongoing clinical trials for younger age groups for the last few months. Uh, we do anticipate, I mean, Pfizer in particular has said that they plan to submit their data for the 5 to 11 age group sometime in September. So, you know, I think it's possible, uh, but possible that end of September, early October, it may be a little bit longer before the FDA does their thorough review of that data and then and then comes to a, a conclusion. Everything, that, at least that Pfizer has been reporting to date, is that their data from their 5 to 11-year-old trials looks really good. Uh, the reason it's taken longer is because as they step down in age groups, they've got to actually use different doses and find the optimal dose uh, mm. at, at each phase. So the, right now, the, the dosing that they've been using for 5 to 11-year-olds is about a third of the adult dose that they use for 12 and up. And then the trials for kids under five are going to use even smaller doses, and those likely won't be available maybe till the end of 21, maybe early 2022. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, probably sometime in the next month or two, we should have an approved vaccine for five to 11-year-olds, which will be a game changer for what's going on in schools right now. Yeah. Um, you, you want me to talk a little bit about just like the, the dynamics of, of what, what parents and teachers are, are yes, all? Yes, please so- do. My wife is an elementary school teacher. She teaches kindergarten in, in the Richmond Public Schools here. Um, and, you know, she uh, the, the school system really in March of 20, uh, 2020 and then all of this last school year had been entirely virtual. Um, and as a kindergarten teacher, I think that was really challenging for her. She very much understood, you know, the anxiety that parents were feeling. But on the, on the flip side, like trying to engage 15 to 18 kindergartners a hundred percent through the screen when they had all kinds of distractions on the other ends, siblings in the room, a TV that was way more exciting than school. Um, so, you know, I, I think that 
that her classroom is just a microcosm of what was a much bigger impact of virtual learning for kids. And, and I think there were some big takeaways. One, virtual learning is not as good as in-person learning. And the academic progress that kids made who were, who were fully virtual was significantly less. So there was an academic component. Um, but I would say almost as or more important was like the social and developmental components of what kids were missing from having interaction with peers and with with adults that they could trust. Um, And that had huge impacts on mental health, behavioral health. We had seen some of the highest rates of uh, suicide attempts and of of depression and anxiety among school-age children that we have really ever. Uh, And I I don't think it's over, right? I I think that this really, the whole pandemic exacerbated a lot of that for for our adolescents and younger school-age population. So as I mentioned, I'm a pediatric hospitalist and I Maybe once a month or so, we'll work an overnight shift at the hospital. Um, and last winter, I had was working a shift, and uh, on the floor, I had six kids, two of whom were teenagers who had attempted suicide. Mm. Uh, that same night, there were five more kids in the emergency room who had all tried to take their own life, who were all waiting bed placement at a psychiatric facility. And the reason they were waiting was because all of the adolescent psych facilities in the state were full. And so, you know, there was just this, like talking to all of the nurses and all of the ER staff, they just never seen anything like it, right? There really was this uh, very, I mean, anecdotal in this case, but very real sense of uh, this is impacting kids in a different way. And I still see it. I mean, I, even, you know, as, I, as I've worked some recent shifts, kids who are really struggling with having been out of school, now entering back into school. So all that to say that there are impacts beyond COVID that that really have taken its toll on kids who have had to, to school virtually, and not to mention all the impacts that, that, that then radiate out to the family. Um, and as we're making decisions about in-person versus virtual schooling, I think we've got to figure out how do we actually accurately weigh the risk? Like, what is the risk of kids actually getting COVID versus kids being out of school and, and having all the other the other potential consequences. Yeah. And that was a much easier question to answer a few months ago before the Delta variant. And, and the Delta variant has, has certainly uh, I don't know, brought in some new variables that we're still trying to really figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious on, I mean, ever since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we were told um, that kids seem to have a much lower I don't know, either rate of infection or, or whatnot. And, uh, and I'm curious if, if you know why, I mean, like one, one of the things I know that I followed really closely here in Virginia was um, it was the case. I think it's, it's, it's like the multi-inflammatory syndrome C or something like that. (laughs) So, so like, like why, why are kids like less likely to, to have it so bad? Yeah, I think the biggest theory of why kids uh, were not affected as severely with COVID was the, the the receptor that the virus, when it when it enters your body, the receptor in your cells that it grabs onto, it's called an ACE receptor. Kids just don't have as high numbers of those ACE, ACE receptors and therefore uh, weren't seeing as much of the impact of the virus in your body. So that was one of the prevailing theories. And then on the flip side, um, kids don't, 
uh, breathe out as much uh, in terms of volume of respiratory droplets. When they cough, it doesn't go as far as when you're an adult. And so they were transmitting less as well. Um, And by and large, that's been true. I mean, kids have really not had anywhere near the seriousness of disease that adults have. Their hospitalization rates have just been a tiny fraction of what they have been for other age ranges. Um, And then there is this kind of rare uh, syndrome, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, MSIC, uh, that uh, not not really significant, but you know, somewhere between. Uh, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but at some point it was about a thousand cases nationally. Um, it's it's probably more than that now, but you know, causing this kind of weird array of symptoms where your immune system was responding uh, by by uh, ramping up infl- your infl- inflammatory uh, response to the virus. Um, So that, you know, wasn't insignificant, but by and large, you know, kids responded very well to treatment and and made full recoveries. There obviously is a fraction of kids who uh, have had some longstanding symptoms, just like there are adults who have this long haul COVID syndrome. Uh, So there's a lot we're still learning about this. But I think the take home is that kids have and Delta variant may, may again introduce some new variables, but uh, kids have, by and large, had much less severe disease and not had very severe consequences from COVID. Got it. So, so I guess if if that being the case, like what, what why would a parent you know vaccinate their their kids? So I know, like, I'm going to vaccinate my kids because people like you tell me I should vaccinate my kids, and I and I tr- I have no reason to not trust you. So so like, but but they're probably inevitably will be people that won't trust, you know, what they hear on the news or hear from folks like you. So, so, you know, why, why should I vaccinate my child if their risk of COVID is, is even less than, than mine as a vaccinated adult? Yeah. So a couple of reasons. One, because just because the rate, the, the risk of COVID in children is incredibly low, it's not zero. And so we have lost about 350 children, zero to 18, to COVID nationally. Um, that is a good bit higher than we have ha- have experienced with flu uh, in in past years. You know, a heavy flu season, probably H1N1, and maybe there was one other flu season 2019 where we lost the upwards of 200 children in a, in a given year. So, uh, you know, uh, m- more more of an impact that we've seen with COVID. Largely, that impact has been in kids who do have more severe underlying conditions. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, some of the same things that put you at risk as an adult, we're, we're also seeing that play out in kids. Um, so that would be one reason is just to protect your child from the, the, those rare severe consequences. The other reason is that children are um are big spreaders, even though they don't cough as much and have as much, uh, you know, propulsion of their respiratory droplets, they are, they hang out in close proximity to one another. And so uh, kids have certainly contributed heavily to the spread of disease in different settings. Uh, And so that would be the other reason is as we're trying to really limit community spread, uh, getting as many people vaccinated as possible, both protects severe consequences and limits the transmission. Hmm. Like, what about masks? So, so one of the things I hear a lot is, you know, putting masks on children is akin to child abuse. Um, I mean, are there, are there any, you know, studies or is there any argument for why we shouldn't have kids in masks? 
we've certainly heard a lot of arguments, you know, that wearing a mask uh, increases your amount of carbon dioxide inhalation, that you're, you're reintroducing your own bacteria. You know, there are a lot of things that people have, have proposed. There have no, been no credible studies that, that show negative impacts of kids wearing masks. And, you know, adults in the medical profession wear masks all day, every day in the OR, as an example. Uh, so, and, and what we've seen as many schools have gone back and had mask requirements for kids is that kids do fine. It's the adults that have an issue with it, but kids really, <laughs> for the most part, keep a mask on with no problem. Sometimes they'll need a little bit reminding, particularly early on, but, um, but yeah, it's been way less of an issue in real life than I think we've, we've made it out to be in sort of the, the public conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always feel, feel kind of bad because uh, after I got my, my vaccination, um, you know, at least at, during that time, we were allowed to go into public places without a mask on, but like we would still have our kids wear masks, you know? So my kids always were really good about making me feel bad. You know, they're like, where's your mask dad? And I'm like, ah, well, I don't really have to, cause I got a vaccination, but you know, I'll just put it on anyways. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, geez, like not, my kids are schooling me now on, on mask use, you know? Like, geez, don't be a mask hole. <laughs> geez, now, no, how how concerned should we be about, um, you know, like the Lambda variant? Or um, I think there was something I read earlier today about like a sub-Delta variant, like yeah. C12 or something like that. Um, any, any initial concerns or is it just like we don't really know yet? Yeah, I do think it's a it's a little bit early to have real conclusions and everything that's been published, at least about Lambda, uh, has been preprint, which means that it hasn't really been circulated in the scientific community and had that peer review that that we really generally look to to validate studies. Um, the Lambda variant, I, I mean, I, I think we are going to hear more about it. Uh, it was first identified in Peru back a couple months ago. We had our first case in the United States at the end of July in Houston, Texas. Um, have not really seen it take over or, or cause any significant disease here in the United States. And that might just be because, you know, Delta is dominating right now. Delta is, you know, 90, almost 97% of new cases in the, in the U.S., and so there's not a lot of room for a new variant to take over right now. Uh, but there, there was one concerning study uh, from Belgium where Lambda, there, uh, there was a Lambda outbreak in a nursing home among uh, mostly vaccinated individuals. And there were seven individuals who were all fully vaccinated who did die as a result of that outbreak. And so, you know, again, more to learn there. Haven't really seen that impact in other parts of the world. Um, it is the dominant strain in Peru right now, over 75%. And then I think um, either in Brazil or Argentina, one, one, one of the South, Afri uh, South American countries is seeing a lot of the Lambda variant. I think conceptually, uh, all of these things are things that we need to pay attention to. I mean, what we've seen over the last year and a half is you started with the wild type strain of COVID. And then as we have seen unchecked outbreaks in different parts of the world, viruses, you know, biologically are going to try to survive. And so they're mutating, they're finding hosts, they're finding ways to evade the immunity we have, whether that's natural immunity or vaccine mediated immunity. Um, and so they're, they're going to do their job and we're going to see more and more versions of, of uh, this new virus or this virus. And uh, I think until we get to a point where the, the bulk of the world has either been vaccinated or has, has had some type of natural immunity, probably through multiple infections, uh, we're not really going to see this slow down. 
Got it. So, so how does, how does Virginia, I guess, rank as far as vaccinations? I mean, are, are we doing, are we doing a good job? Can we do better? Yeah, we can always do better, but I think certainly <laughs> compared to our, our neighboring states where we are doing pretty well, we hit the target last week of, of getting to 75% of our adults 18 and over with at least one dose. So, you know, that was an encouraging step. It was a, a goal uh, back in June. The president said we want to see at least 70% of American adults with one dose by July 4th. Uh, we beat that by a couple of weeks in Virginia and and, and have, have continued to keep pace. The problem with that is that one dose isn't being fully vaccinated. And so while it's a a good thing to aspire to, we really need to get as much of the um, right now eligible population to get fully vaccinated as possible. And in Virginia, we're about 65% there. So uh, again, good progress. We could always do better and we will continue to work with lots of different communities to really try to lower barriers uh, to vaccination. And some of those are logistical things like how do we make sure that we're showing up in communities that don't speak English and and haven't necessarily been connected or or aware of where they can get vaccinated. At this point, it's much more about getting to folks who uh, don't want to be vaccinated. And and I think Delta has has opened a new door. We've certainly seen an uptick in vaccination over the last few weeks as the Delta variant has started to take over. We've seen case rates uh, more than 10x in Virginia since the middle of June when we were seeing our lowest rates ever, about 150 cases uh, per day in the middle of June. And now we're about 2,500 cases a day. So um, that, that, I think, has gotten people's attention. We're starting to see hospitals really get impacted again. And so all of this has led to a resurgence of interest in people getting vaccinated. Um, it's unfortunate that it took that, but it's good because it's what we need to get out of this. Yeah, and, and you always hear this term of like herd immunity, but I've always thought that like that herd immunity would have to occur at the national level, not necessarily at the state level, right? Because of, I mean, all the interstate commerce and, and what have you. Is, is, that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, and and in that same token, it really has to happen at a global level because we're so interconnected as a global community now that when we are fully vaccinated as a as a country, but uh, our neighboring country is not, that's eventually going to make its way, and especially a new variant that's evading our vaccine or is much more contagious, like the Delta variant. So it is a, a harder concept to get around. Early on, when we're really just dealing with this initial strain of the what we call the wild type strain of the COVID virus, um, based on how infectious, how transmissible that that strain was, we ballparked somewhere between 60 and 70 percent, kind of comparing it to other viruses or other communicable diseases. As we've seen new strains emerge, and particularly this Delta variant, which is way more contagious than than any of the previous strains, um, that that number is a moving target. And that's a hard thing for the American Mm. public to kind of get their arms around because they're like, wait, you told us 60% and we were good. And now there's this Delta variant that is two to four times as contagious and uh, really impacting uh, the unvaccinated in in a very different way. We're now seeing the highest rates of pediatric hospitalization we've seen. We're seeing uh, very high rates of people under 50 getting hospitalized. So it's a different animal that we're dealing with. And that's part of the reason the goalposts are moving. And frankly, they're moving in a a way that may not actually be attainable. I mean, the the, the contagiousness of the Delta variant probably means we have to be over 90% vaccinated to, to slow this thing down. It's not likely. 
And so what I think what I see happening is that we will continue to push to get people vaccinated uh, and and really between people who are vaccinated and people who are infected and develop some kind of natural immunity, we will get to a point probably in early 2022 where the, there's enough immunity that things start to slow down. Um, and that's, you know, kind of looking at the 1918 flu as one example, but also uh, expert epidemiologists uh, really kind of looking at, at the context with COVID. Wow. Um, so my, my last question, and, and, and I know this is, this is going to be a very speculative type of question is, is when, when will COVID be over? <laughs> um, Tomorrow? Tomorrow, yeah. I'd say tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the reality is that it's here with us to stay. Uh, in in the same way that the flu is a virus that we have to contend with every year, it's always in the background. Uh, we have a new flu booster that's made every year based on whatever the dominant strains of circulating flu are. That's going to be the deal with COVID. It's not going to disappear. Uh, we are going to see new variants. And, and again, hopefully we will have enough vaccine-given immunity and then a combination of different types of natural immunity that things will slow down. But I, I think we're going to see COVID in the background for decades. And, and I think it's very likely that our annual uh, vaccination effort really mirrors the flu, where we have a new formulation of the COVID booster that reflects the dominant circulating strains of that particular year. And, and we do ourselves our best to protect the population. Oh, geez. On that happy note. Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I, I said that was going to be the last question. My, my last question, um, actually, is like, how do you, how do you um, I don't know, decompress all the stuff that you see and read. I mean, um, I know for myself, like I, I try to stay up to date as on as much COVID stuff as I can. And every once in a while, I just need to like, just take a, take a day and just like disconnect from everything. Um, and just pretend that COVID isn't a r- real, you know, <laughs> like, cause, so like, the, so like, how do you do it? I mean, you, you live, you live and breathe in kind of this world. Yeah, uh, I can't say there's been much decompressing this last year and a half, but, uh, you know, I've got an incredibly supportive family. My wife is absolutely amazing and five kids who who help me forget quick when I get home. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just think that like creating some sort of cycle of rest has been important. Um, you know, doing that on a weekly basis hasn't always been possible, but uh, there have been a couple of times where I've been really able to disconnect from work for a week or two at a time over the last year and a half. And it's, it's kind of given me the energy to, to get back. And uh, yeah, our, our friends and our faith community have been really important parts of this. I mean, I can't tell you how many, uh, as many handwritten notes as I've gotten and, and people not happy with me, I've gotten 10 times that uh, of people who've taken the time to say, hey, we're praying for you. We're really uh, ha- like, we're, we're so pleased with the way that you're serving our state right now. Um, and that has, that's meant the world. I mean, it really has helped uh, keep, keep things in perspective and, and help me to remember, you know, what, what I've been called to in this time. That's awesome. Well, and and that is truly a happy note to end on. So thank you again, Dr. Avila. We are super appreciative. Thank you for letting me ask you a ton of questions from our audience. Thank you for letting me ask questions just about my own kids, because now I feel a little bit better about sitting in the school. So my wife would be happy about that. Um, and uh, yeah, just thank you for everything that you, you do for Virginia. My pleasure.
pleasure, Will. Great to be with you. Take care. Yeah, good to be with you.